Welcome to the Huberman Lab Podcast, where we discuss science and science-based tools for everyday life. I'm Andrew Huberman, and I'm a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford School of Medicine. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke is a psychiatrist and the chief of the Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford University School of Medicine. She's a psychiatrist who treats patients struggling with addiction. She has successfully treated patients dealing with drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and behavioral addictions, such as gambling and sex addiction, as well as other types of addiction. In fact, during our discussion, I learned that there are a huge range of behaviors and substances to which people can become addicted to, and that there is a common biological underpinning of all those addictions. I also learned that there is a common path to the treatment and recovery from essentially all addictions. Dr. Lemke explained that to me and explained how to think about and conceptualize our own addictions, as well as the addictions of other people who are struggling to get treatment, move through treatment, and stay sober from their addictions. In addition to treating patients, Dr. Lemke is an author and was featured in the 2020 Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. I'm excited to tell you that she has a new book coming out called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. The book comes out August 24th and is an absolutely fascinating read into addiction and ways to treat various types of addiction. I've read the book cover to cover, and all I'll tell you is that at the very first chapter and throughout, you are going to be absolutely blown away. The stories about her patients are extremely engaging. It brings forward the real struggle of addiction and the incredible I think it's fair to say heroic battles that people fight in order to get through addictions of various kinds. And all of that is woven through with story, with science in ways that make it very accessible to anyone, whether or not you have a science background or not. I can't recommend it highly enough. So again, the book is Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. It comes out August 24th of this year, 2021. And you can pre-order that book by going to Amazon. We will provide a link to that in the show caption. Before we begin, I just want to mention that this podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at Stanford. It is, however, part of my desire and effort to bring zero cost to consumer information about science and science-related tools to the general public. In keeping with that theme, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's podcast. Our first sponsor is Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is an all-in-one vitamin mineral probiotic drink. I've been taking Athletic Greens since 2012, so I'm delighted that they're sponsoring the podcast. The reason I started taking Athletic Greens and the reason I still take Athletic Greens once or twice a day is that it helps me cover all of my basic nutritional needs. It makes up for any deficiencies that I might have. In addition, it has probiotics, which are vital for microbiome health. I've done a couple of episodes now on the so-called gut microbiome and the ways in which the microbiome interacts with your immune system, with your brain to regulate mood, and essentially with every biological system relevant to health throughout your brain and body. With Athletic Greens, I get the vitamins I need, the minerals I need, and the probiotics to support my microbiome. If you'd like to try Athletic Greens, you can go to athleticgreens.com slash Huberman and claim a special offer. They'll give you five free travel packs plus a year's supply of vitamin D3K2. There are a ton of data now showing that vitamin D3 is essential for various aspects of our brain and body health. Even if we're getting a lot of sunshine, many of us are still deficient in vitamin D3. And K2 is also important because it regulates things like cardiovascular function, calcium in the body, and so on. 
Again, go to athleticgreens.com slash Huberman to claim the special offer of the five free travel packs and the year supply of vitamin D3 K2. Today's episode is also brought to us by Element. Element is an electrolyte drink that has everything you need and nothing you don't. That means the exact ratios of electrolytes are an element, and those are sodium, magnesium, and potassium, but it has no sugar. I've talked many times before on this podcast about the key role of hydration and electrolytes for nerve cell function, neuron function, as well as the function of all the cells and all the tissues and organ systems of the body. If we have sodium, magnesium, and potassium present in the proper ratios, all of those cells function properly and all our bodily systems can be optimized. If the electrolytes are not present and if hydration is low, we simply can't think as well as we would otherwise. Our mood is off, hormone systems go off, our ability to get into physical action, to engage in endurance and strength and all sorts of other things is diminished. So with Element, you can make sure that you're staying on top of your hydration and that you're getting the proper ratios of electrolytes. If you'd like to try Element, you can go to drinkelement, that's lmnt.com slash Huberman, and you'll get a free Element sample pack with your purchase. They're all delicious. So again, if you wanna try Element, you can go to elementlmnt.com slash Huberman. Today's episode is also brought to us by Waking Up. Waking Up is a meditation app that includes hundreds of meditation programs, mindfulness trainings, yoga nidra sessions, and NSDR, non-sleep deep rest protocols. I started using the Waking Up app a few years ago because even though I've been doing regular meditation since my teens, and I started doing yoga nidra about a decade ago, my dad mentioned to me that he had found an app, turned out to be the Waking Up app, which could teach you meditations of different durations and that had a lot of different types of meditations to place the brain and body into different states and that he liked it very much. So I gave the Waking Up app a try and I too found it to be extremely useful because sometimes I only have a few minutes to meditate, other times I have longer to meditate. And indeed, I love the fact that I can explore different types of meditation to bring about different levels of understanding about consciousness, but also to place my brain and body into lots of different kinds of states, depending on which meditation I do. I also love that the Waking Up app has lots of different types of yoga nidra sessions. For those of you who don't know, yoga nidra is a process of lying very still, but keeping an active mind. It's very different than most meditations. And there's excellent scientific data to show that yoga nidra and something similar to it called non-sleep deep rest or NSDR, can greatly restore levels of cognitive and physical energy, even with just a short 10-minute session. If you'd like to try the Waking Up app, you can go to wakingup.com slash Huberman and access a free 30-day trial. Again, that's wakingup.com slash Huberman to access a free 30-day trial. And now for my discussion with Dr. Anna Lemke. All right. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I have a lot of questions for you. I I and many listeners of this podcast are obsessed with dopamine and what is dopamine? How does it work? We all hear that dopamine is this molecule associated with pleasure. I think the, uh, the term dopamine hits, like I'm getting a dopamine hit from this, from Instagram or from likes or from praise or from whatever is now, um, commonly heard. What is dopamine? And what are maybe some things about dopamine that most people don't know and probably that I don't know either? So dopamine is a neurotransmitter and neurotransmitters are those molecules that bridge the gap between two neurons. So they essentially allow one neuron, the presynaptic neuron, to communicate with the postsynaptic neuron. Um, dopamine is intimately uh, associated with 
the experience of reward, but also with movement, which I think is really interesting because movement and reward are linked, right? If you think about, you know, um, early humans, it, you had to move in order to go seek out the water or the, the meat or whatever it was. Um, and even in the most primitive organisms, dopamine is released when food is sensed in the environment. For example, C. elegans, a, a very um, primitive worm. So um, dopamine is this really um, powerful, important molecule in the brain that helps us um, experience pleasure. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in pleasure, but it's a really, really important one. And if, if you want to think about something that most people don't know about dopamine, which, which I think is really interesting, is that we, we are always releasing dopamine at a kind of tonic baseline rate. And it's really the deviation from that baseline rather than like hits of dopamine in a vacuum that make a difference. So when we experience pleasure, our dopamine release goes above baseline. And likewise, dopamine can go below that tonic baseline. And then we experience a kind of pain. Interesting. So is it fair to say that one's baseline levels of dopamine, how frequently we are releasing dopamine in the absence of some, uh, I don't know, drug or food or experience, just sitting, being, uh, is that associated with how happy somebody is, their kind of baseline of happiness or level of depression? There is evidence that shows that people who are depressed may indeed have lower tonic levels of dopamine. So that's a really reasonable thought. And there is a, some evidence to suggest that that may be true. The other thing that we know, and this is you know really kind of what what the book is about, is that if we um, expose ourselves chronically to substances or behaviors that repeatedly release large amounts of dopamine in our brain's reward pathway, that we can change our tonic baseline and actually lower it over time as our brain tries to compensate for all of that dopamine, which is more really than we were designed to to experience. Interesting. And is would is it um, the case that our baseline levels of dopamine are set by our genetics, by our heredity? Well, I think you know if you think about sort of you know the early stages of development in infancy, certainly that is true. You're kind of you know born with probably whatever is your baseline level, but obviously your experiences can have a huge impact on where your your dopamine level ultimately settles out. So um, if somebody's disposition is one of um, constant excitement and anticipation or easily excited, uh, you, these are, I think about the kind of people where you say, hey, do you want to check out this new place for tacos? And they're like, yeah, that'd be great. And other people are um, a little more cynical, harder <laughs> to budge, like my bulldog Costello. Um, <laughs> very, very stable, low levels of dopamine with big inflections in his case. Um, is that, do you think that's a set in terms of um, our parents and obviously nature and nurture interact, but is that, is dopamine at the core of our temperament? I don't really think we know the answer to that, but I will say that people are definitely born with different temperaments and those temperaments do affect their ability to experience joy. 
Um, and, and, you know, we've known that for a long time and we describe that in many different ways. One of the ways that we describe that in the modern era is to use psychiatric nomenclature like this person has a dysthymic temperament or, you know, this person has chronic major depressive disorder. Um, in terms of looking specifically at who's vulnerable to addiction, um, that's an interesting sort of mixed bag because when you look at uh, the research on risk factors for addiction, so what kind of temperament uh, of a person makes them more vulnerable to addiction, you see um, some interesting findings. First, you see that people who are more impulsive are more vulnerable to addiction. So what is impulsivity? That means having difficulty um, putting space between the thought or desire to do something and actually doing it. And people who have difficulty putting a space there, who, are, who have a thought to do something and just do it impulsively, mm -hmm are people who are more vulnerable to addiction. Interesting. Could I, I, in terms of impulsivity, is this something that relates literally to um, the startle reflex? Like I, for instance, as a uh, lab director, I'm familiar with walking around my lab and um, when I decide, deciding I'm gonna talk to my people, of course, when they knock on my door, it's always like, wait, why am I being bothered right now? Even though I love <laughs> to talk to them, but I walk around my lab from time to time and some people I notice I'll say, um, do you have a moment? And they'll slowly turn around and say, yeah, or no, in mm -hmm. some cases. Um, and other people will jump the moment I say their name. Mm -hmm. They actually have a, uh, a kind of a heightened um, startle reflex. Right. Is that related to impulsivity or is what you're referring to um, an attempt to uh, withhold behavior that's very deliberate under very deliberate conditions? Yeah, so I don't think that that startle reflex is, is necessarily related to impulsivity. That, that can be related to anxiety. So people who are high anxiety people will tend to have more of a startle reflex. Impulsivity is a little bit different. And by the way, impulsivity is not always bad, right? Um, impulsivity is, is that thing where there's not a lot of self-editing or worrying about future consequences. You know, you have the idea to do something and you do it. And of course, we can imagine many scenarios where that's absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, there can be a sort of, uh, let's say, intimate um, interactions between people where you wouldn't really want to be super inhibited about it, right? You would want to be disinhibited and, and impulsive. Um, there, I can also like imagine like sort of um, fight or flight scenarios, like battle scenarios, right? Where where it would really be good to be impulsive and just go, rah, you know, yeah. just where go. hesitation can cost right. you your life. Yes, that's yeah. right, that's yeah. right. But you know, and I think this brings up a really something that I've come to believe after twenty five years of practicing psychiatry is that what we now conceptualize in our current ecosystem as mental illness are actually traits that in another ecosystem might be very advantageous. They're just not advantageous right now because of the world that we live in. And, and I think, you know, impulsivity is potentially one of those, right? Because we live in this world that's sort of like you have to um, constantly be thinking sort of rationally about the consequences of X, Y, or Z. And it's such a sensory rich environment, right? That we're being bombarded with all of these opportunities, these sensory opportunities, and we have to constantly check ourselves. And so, so, so impulsivity is something that right now um, can be a difficult trait, but isn't in and of itself a bad thing. I see. Yeah. yeah and it's, I, I'm beginning to realize it's a fine line between spontaneity and impulsivity. Yeah. Uh, 
what is pleasure and how does it work at the biological level and um if if it feels right at the psychological level i think we and um if you don't mind uh, painting a picture of sort of the the range of things that you have observed in your clinic or in life that people can become addicted to but just to start off really simply what is this thing that we call pleasure well, I think it's it's actually really hard to define pleasure in any kind of succinct way, because certainly there is the seeking out of um, a, a high or a euphoria, or, or I think you know the kind of experience that most anybody would associate with the word pleasure, but but also um, the seeking out of those same substances and behaviors is often a way to escape pain. So for example, when I, when I talk to people with addiction, um, sometimes their initial foray into using a drug is to get pleasure, but very often it's a way to escape their suffering, whatever their suffering may be. And certainly as people become addicted, even those who initially we're seeking out pleasure are ultimately just trying to avoid the pain of withdrawal or the pain of the consequences of their drug use. So I, I think it's, you know, very hard to actually, you know, define it as this unitary thing. And it's certainly not just getting a high. There are so many ways in which people sort of want to escape, which is not the same thing as sort of this hedonic you know, mm -hmm. wanting to feel pleasure. So someone could decide that they want to go out and dance or get up and dance because of the pleasure of dancing. I can imagine that. Um, but, uh, and maybe it's very difficult for them to stay seated when a particular song comes on, or for instance. But um, seeking what we would call pleasure in order to eliminate pain, that, that evokes a different picture in my mind. That evokes a picture of somebody that... Um, feels lost or depressed or underwhelmed. Um, I definitely want to get into the precise and general description of addiction and what that is. But in a previous conversation we had, you said something that really rung in my mind, which is that many people who become addicted to things, let's call them addicts, <laughs> um, have this feeling that normal life isn't interesting enough. Mm -hmm that they are seeking a super normal experience and that the day-to-day -day routine um, balance, which is actually in the title of your book, uh, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, that the word balance itself can sometimes be a bit of a, a an aversive term for mm -hmm. people. And um, I, I'm struck by this idea. And the reason I want to explore it is because so much of what I see online is about generating a lack of balance mm. about being tilted forward at all times, really leaning into life hard, experiencing life, you know, living a full life. Uh, even the commencement speech given by Steve Jobs on this campus was really about finding passion, digging, you know, that's so much in the narrative now. Um, so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your experience with this association, if it really exists, between uh, people's sense of the normalcy or maybe even how boring life can be and their tendency to become addicts of some sort? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that life for humans has always been hard, but I think that now it's 
harder in unprecedented ways. And I think that the way that life is is really hard now is that it actually is really boring. Um, and the reason that it's boring is because all of our survival needs are met, right? I mean, we don't even have to leave our homes to meet every single physical need, you know, as long as you're of a certain level of financial well-being, which, which, which frankly, um, you know, we, we talk so much about, you know, the, the income gap, and certainly there is this enormous gap between rich and poor, but that gap is smaller than it's ever been in like the history of humans. Um, even the poorest of the poor have more um, excess income to spend on leisure goods than they ever have before in human history. Um, if you look at leisure time, for example, so people without a high school education have 42% more leisure time than people with uh, um, a college degree. Um, so so what my, my point here is that Life is hard now in this really weird way in that we don't really have anything that we have to do. So we're all forced to make stuff up, you know, whether it's being a scientist or being a doctor or being an Olympic athlete or, you know, climbing Mount Everest. And people really vary in their need for friction. And some people need a lot more than others. And if they don't have it, they're really, really unhappy. And I do think that a lot of the people that I see with addiction and other forms of mental illness are people who need more friction. Like they're unhappy, not necessarily because there's something wrong with their brain, but because their brain is not suited to this world. And do you think they have that sense? My brain isn't suited to this world or they simply feel um, a restlessness and they're constantly seeking stimulation? I think that's right. Yeah, I think it's it's not really knowing what's wrong with me. Um, why am I unhappy? Um, how can I be happier? And of course, as you talk about what what's so pervasive in our narrative now is like find your passion, you know, um, you know, find your, you know, whatever it is to save the world. And in a way that's good because it has people out in the world and seeking. Um, but but in a way, it can also be misleading in the sense that um I think people aren't entirely aware that that the world is a hard place and that, and that life is hard and that, you know, like we're all kind of making it up. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, a book by Cal Newport. I don't know if you know Cal Newport's work, yeah. but I, you guys are um, very symbiotic in your messages. Uh, he's a professor of computer science at, at Georgetown. Uh, yes, at Georgetown and wrote a book some years ago, really ahead of its time called So Good They Can't Ignore You, which is about not... Um, meditating or uh, doing much work to try and figure out what one's passion is by thinking, but rather go out and acquire skills right. and get develop a sense of, of passion for something by your experience of hard work and, and getting better and feedback. Right. A little bit of the growth mindset thing right. of our colleague, Carol Dweck, but he's gone on to write books, um, Deep Work, and which is all about removing yourself from technology and doing deep work. Yes, right. And he's been a big proponent of the evils of context switching too often throughout the day. Yeah. 
for sake of productivity, mostly. His new book is called um, A World Without Email. Uh -huh. I'm beginning to realize <laughs> as I cite off these books and your book, Dopamine Nation, uh, Finding Balance uh, in the Age of Indulgence, that uh, maybe the reason why you two don't know about one another is because neither of you are on social media. That's it. Right. That's and it. yet you're two of the most productive people that I know, um, including productive authors. So that's a discussion unto itself. But I find this fascinating. So um, let's talk about the pleasure, pain, balance, and addiction. And I've heard you use this uh, seesaw or balance scale right. um, uh, analogy before. And I think it's a wonderful one uh, that really, for me, clarified what addiction is, at least at the mechanistic level. Yeah. So to me, one of the most significant findings in neuroscience in the last 75 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located, which means the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain and they work like a balance. So when we feel pleasure, our balance tips one way. When we feel pain, it tips in the opposite direction. And one of the overriding rules governing this balance is that it wants to stay level. So it doesn't want to remain tipped very long to pleasure or to pain. And with any deviation from neutrality, the brain will work very hard to restore a level balance or what scientists call homeostasis. And the way the brain does that is with any stimulus to one side, there will be a tip in equal and opposite amount to the other side. It's like the principal laws of physics. Yes, right, yeah. right. So like, I like to watch YouTube videos. When I watch YouTube videos of American Idol, you know, it tips to the side of pleasure. And then when I stop watching it, um, I have a come down, right? Which is a tip to the equal and opposite amount um, on the other side. And that's that moment of wanting to watch one more YouTube video, right? Well, yeah, and I, w I just want to um, interject there. So this moment of, of wanting to watch another that is associated with pain, uh, I think, is are we always aware of that happening? Because you just described it in a very conscious way. right? But when I um, indulge in something I enjoy, I'm usually thinking about just wanting more of yes, that thing. Yes. I don't think about the pain. I just yes. think about more. Right. right. So really excellent point because we're mostly not aware of it. And it's also reflexive. So we it's not something that consciously happens or that we're aware of unless we really begin to pay attention. And, and when we begin to pay attention, we really can become very aware of it in the moment. Again, it's like a falling away, like that, you know, you're on social media and, you know, you get a good tweet of something and then you can't stop yourself because there's this awareness, a latent awareness that as soon as I disengage from this behavior, I'm going to experience a, a kind of a pain, right? A falling away, a, a missing that feeling, a wanting more of it. And of course, one way to combat that is to do it more, right? And more and more and more. So I think I think that is really what I want people to tune into and, and get an awareness around because once you tune into it, you can see it a lot. And then when you begin to see it, you have, and if you, you know, keep the model of the balance in mind, I think it, it gives people kind of a way to imagine what they're experiencing on a neurobiological level and understand it. And in that understanding, get some mastery over it, which is really what this is all about. Because ultimately, we do need to disengage, right? We can't live in that space all the time, right? We have other things we need to do. And there are also serious consequences that come with trying to repeat and continue that experience or that feeling. Yeah, so if I understand this correctly, 
uh, when we find something or when something finds us <laughs> that we enjoy that feels pleasurable uh, social media food right. sex gambling mm -hmm. whatever happens to be and we will explore the full range of these there's a some dopamine release when we engage right. in that behavior mm -hmm. and then what you're telling me is that very quickly yes and beneath my conscious awareness mm -hmm. there's a tilting back of the scale where pleasure is reduced by way of increasing pain. Right. And I've heard you say before that the pain mechanism has some competitive advantages over the pleasure mechanism such that it doesn't just bring the scale back to level. Mm. It actually brings pain higher mm. than pleasure. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, so what happens, again, so the, the, the hallmark of any addictive substance or behavior is that it releases a lot of dopamine in our brain's reward pathway, like, right? Like broccoli just doesn't release a lot of dopamine, just doesn't, right? The, I'm trying to imagine, I was about to say, maybe, there, and I, I stopped myself because, no, bro broccoli's good, it can be yeah. really good, but broccoli... Right. Broccoli is never amazing. Right. Broccoli is no. never, never amazing. Like, this is I mean, the most amazing honestly, we can probably find somebody on the planet yeah. for whom broccoli is amazing. And of course, if I'm starving, broccoli yeah. broccoli is amazing. Yeah. Rich right? Roll. So. Rich Roll is big on plants <laughs> yeah, right. and he and he has a good relationship to plants. Uh, right. Rich, uh, tell us how to make broccoli amazing. <laughs> if anyone could do it, it'd be rich. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but but what happens right after I do something that is really pleasurable and releases a lot of dopamine is again my brain is going to immediately compensate by downregulating my own dopamine receptors, my own dopamine transmission to compensate for that. Okay, and that's that come down or the hangover, or that after effect, that moment of wanting to do it more. Now, if I just wait for that feeling to pass then my dopamine will re-regulate itself and I'll go back to whatever my chronic baseline is. But if I don't wait, and here's really the key, if I keep indulging again and again and again, ultimately I have, I have so much on the pain side, right? That I've essentially reset my brain to what we call like an anhedonic or lacking in joy type of state, which is a dopamine deficit state. So that's really the, the, the way in which pain can become the main driver is because I've indulged so much in these high reward behaviors or substances that my brain has had to compensate by way down regulating my own dopamine such that even when I'm not doing that drug, I'm in a dopamine deficit state, which is akin to a clinical depression. I, I have anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and a lot of mental preoccupation with using again or getting the drug. And so th that's the piece there. There's the single use, which easily passes, but it's the chronic use that can then reset really our dopamine thresholds and then nothing is enjoyable mm -hmm. right that then everything sort of pales in comparison to this one drug that i want to keep doing and that one drug could be a person right i mean i yes i know people in my life that are still talking about this one relationship this one person that was just so great despite all the challenges of that thing that it's almost like they're addicted to the narrative yeah uh mm -hmm. they were maybe you still are addicted to the person. Right. So it could be to any number of things, video game, sex, right. gambling, a person, a narrative. Right. To me, and because of the way you describe this mechanism, this pleasure pain balance, that all speaks to the kind of generalizability of our brain circuitry. Mm -hmm. And this is something that fascinates me. Uh, and I know it fascinates you as well, which is that 
Um, nature did not evolve 20 different mechanisms for 20 different types of addiction. Just like anxiety is a couple of core sets of hormones and neurotransmitters and pathways. And one person is triggered by social interactions. Another person is triggered by uh, spiders. But the underlying response is identical. It sounds like with addiction as well, there there may be some nuance, but that they're sort of a core set of processes. So it doesn't really matter if it's gambling or video games or sex or a narrative about a previous lover or partner or whatever. It's the same addictive process underneath that. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Okay. And that's where this whole idea of cross addiction comes in. So once you've been addicted to a substance, severely addicted, that makes you more vulnerable to addiction to any substance. And when you say substance, uh, does the same, is what you just said also true for behaviors? Yes. So, so when I, when I use yeah. the word drug, I, I'm talking about substances and behaviors okay. really. And be, I'm talking about behaviors like gambling, sex, um, you porn. know, gaming, porn, absolutely shopping, work. work. You've accused me. I'll work. just for the record, <laughs> uh, Anna, Dr. Lemke has accused mm -hmm. me, not accused me, has um, diagnosed me uh, outside the clinic uh, in a playful way of being work addicted. You're probably right. Yeah. I The first thoughts I have when I wake up are typically about work, certainly right. within 50 milliseconds or so of waking. And um, probably the last thoughts I have, I would hope are not about work, but yeah, I work constantly. I, I don't. I do other things, but I right. have to actively turn that off. Yes, nice. that's exactly right. And you're certainly not alone in that. And of course- At Stanford? No, right. no, no, no. I mean, here in Silicon Valley, right? <laughs> it's right. highly rewarded, right? So that yeah. kind of- that It's, kind it's of embedded in the culture. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and there's this other city, I think it's called New York, where they also work a lot <laughs> here, and it's heavily rewarded. Um, I once said, and I'm sure that I'm not the first person to say it, but- um, I was thinking about addiction, and I was thinking about the underlying circuits, and uh, and I posted something to the uh, to the to social media, which said that addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. That was the way that I kind of crystallized the literature in my mind. And then we met, and you and you, of course, came and uh, gave these amazing lectures in the neuroanatomy course for the medical students, and and the rest is history. But I, uh, I tossed out a kind of a mirroring statement for that as well, which was a bit um, overstepping, I admit, which I said, addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. And I said, dare I say, enlightenment is a progressive expansion of the things that bring you pleasure. Not that anybody knows what enlightenment is, <laughs> but it was my attempt to take a little bit of a jab at the fact that nobody knows. Yeah. And so why not? Why wouldn't I throw yeah. a neurobiological explanation just right. to just kind of sample the waters? Um, and people had varying levels of response, but I would have, the reason I bring that up is that I would imagine that being able to derive pleasure from many things would be a wonderful attribute. We know people like this that um, can experience pleasure in little things and in big events, uh, not just you know the big milestones of life, but also the the subtle you know as the like the the yogis would say the subtle ripples of life. Uh, if such an ability exists, what do you think that that reflects a healthily tuned dopamine system? One that can engage and enjoy, but then disengage. Is that what we should be seeking? And, and to, to underscore, I know nothing about enlightenment meditation or, the, or any of it. I just, I'm, I use these as opportunities to explore. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, I mean, and I, I understand the question as so. Where what should we be striving for, right? Where where should we settle out? And you know, in my book, I really hold out people in recovery from severe addiction as sort of modern day prophets for the rest of us, because I do think that people who have been addicted and then go get into recovery do have a hard won wisdom. Um, that we can all benefit from. And and the wisdom, I guess, you know, to distill it down, I mean, it's, it's many things. But in terms of, you know, dopamine, the, the wisdom is there are adaptive ways to get your dopamine and there are less than adaptive ways. And in general, um, you could describe the adaptive ways as not too potent, so not tipping that balance too hard or too fast to the side of pleasure. So does that mean never allowing myself to be absolutely in complete bliss? Or does it mean not allowing myself to stay in that state too long? The latter, I think the latter. So, and that, then that gets to temperament. So I'm gonna get that to a second. So, so in general, what we want is some kind of flexibility in that balance and the ability to re easily reassert homeostasis. We don't wanna break our balance, which is possible if we overindulge for enough period of time and end up with a balance tip to the side of pain, this dopamine deficit state we've been talking about. We want a, we want a flexible, resilient balance, right? which can be sensitive to things going on in the environment, which can experience pleasure and approach, which can experience pain and recoil, right? This is all adaptive and healthy and necessary and good. We would never want a balance that doesn't tilt. Right. That would be a disaster. Right. We wouldn't be human. Um, and we wouldn't want that. It'd be really, really boring. On the other hand, what people in recovery from addiction talk about is to some extent having to learn to live with things being a little boring a lot of the time, right? So trying to avoid some of this intensity and thrill seeking and escapism that really is at the core of addictive tendencies. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but when yeah. you say boring, um, can we add stressful and boring? Yes. Because there are days where I'm not, I have to, I'm one of these people, I have to remind myself to have fun because yes. I sort of forgot what the term means yeah, right. because I've, I like to think that I experience a lot of pleasure in little things, right. but I, I'm a pretty hard driving guy. I, I like goals and big milestones, all that right. stuff. Anyway, um, the point being that many days I'm not bored thinking, oh, there's nothing to do, but I am kind of overwhelmed by the number of things that are really not pleasurable that yeah. I have to do. Right. I won't mention what they are because I, <laughs> I, I don't want my colleagues to be like, so that's why you don't yeah. respond to emails. Um, no, just your emails. Um, <laughs> not yours, Anna, but theirs. Um, in any event, um, so anxiety and boredom can hang out together, right? Mm -hmm. Am I mm -hmm. correct? In oh, thing? for sure. I mean, okay. actually boredom is highly anxiety provoking. Okay, that's good to know because I yeah. think people hear boredom yeah. and they think, like, oh, there's nothing to do here. Right. There's not, it's right. usually, I feel like we have a ton to do. We just don't really want to do it. Right. As opposed right. to something that we're excited to do. Right. Okay. So, so that this gets to sort of some of the core things also we were talking about earlier about finding your passion. So I'm going to try to link it all mm -hmm. together. Um, but, but basically is boredom. First of all, boredom is a rare experience for modern humans because we're constantly distracting ourselves from the present moment and we have an infinite number of ways to do that, right? 
Um, but boredom is really, I think, an important and necessary experience. But it is scary because when you allow yourself to be bored, um, let's say you were had that list of all the things you hate to do, but you actually got them all done. Imagine that. And you got your forthcoming book done huh. and you did all your interviews. <laughs> no, no. And, it and could then, happen. Lightning could right. strike. And you yeah. walked your dog and you cleaned your house and you went shopping. Imagine that for a moment. You would be sitting in your house and my guess is you would be terrified because- wow, what am I supposed to do now, right? There's nothing I really have to do. And that is really, really scary. That can feel like free fall. And yet that's really an important and good experience to have. And I think that is an experience out of which we can have a lot of creative um, initiative, but also really consider our priorities and values. Okay, here I am on planet earth. What the hee-haw am I going to do with my life? What do I really care about? How do I really want to spend my time when I'm not distracting myself, you know, in order to, to spend it? And the, you know, then this gets back to our conversation a little bit earlier about finding your passion. So I think that uh, one of the big problems now that's very misguided about this idea of finding your passion, it's almost as if people are looking to fit the key into the lock of the thing that was meant for them to do. Right. And then everything will feel like a natural progression. Right. And then everything will be wonderful. Yeah, I can and attest I'll, to the fact that is not how it works yeah, in any endeavor. Right. And it's, that you'll have all this great success or, you know, but, and here, here's where, I really think the answer lies, and I really, really believe this. Stop looking for your passion and instead look around right where you are. Stop distracting yourself. Look around right where you are and see what needs to be done. So not what do I want to do, but what is the work that needs to be done? And more importantly, it doesn't have to be some grandiose work. Like, does the garbage need to be taken out, right? Is there some garbage on your neighbor's lawn that someone threw there that you could actually bend over and pick up and put into the garbage can? Look around you. There is so much work that needs to be done that nobody wants to do that is really, really important. And if we all did that, I really think the world would be a much better place. And this is what people who have severe addiction who get into recovery realize. They're like, it's not about me and my will and what I'm going to will in my life or in the world. It's about looking around what needs to be done. What is the work that I am called to do in this moment? which also is incredibly freeing because I don't have to search for the perfect thing. There's a lot of burden now on young people that they have to find that perfect thing. And until they've found that perfect thing, they're going to be miserable. You don't have to do that. Look at the life you were given. Look at the people around you. Look at the jobs that present themselves to you and do that job simply and honorably one day at a time. In a, with a kind of humility. I think this is really what, what's so striking to me about the wisdom of people in recovery. There's this incredible humility that comes out of that experience. You feel so broken, so ashamed, but you pick yourself up one day at a time and you build a life that's around, what can I do right in this moment that might benefit another person and thereby benefit me? That's um a really important point. And, um, and if you're willing, I'd like to actually stay on this issue of, of passion um, because uh, I think 
the dopamine systems, if I understand them correctly, the dopamine systems merge with this work that you're referring to, this immediacy of things calling to us, like taking out the trash, which sounds frankly really boring, <laughs> um, to be honest. I, yeah. I hate taking out the trash, but I do it because <laughs> I like a clean home and I yeah, like a home, that, right. a home that smells good. Yeah. Um, or at least doesn't smell bad. Uh, so we do these things and um, not that we want to offer some larger carrot as a consequence of doing those things. But if I understand correctly, what you're saying is in the act of looking at one's immediate environment, acting on that immediate environment, we cultivate a relationship to these circuits in our brain about action and reward that at least to my mind, span the range of small things being rewarding and then lead us to bigger things being rewarding. It's not like all we're going to do is take out trash and, and tend to house. We eventually will venture out and we eventually will find careers and, and work on those. But if I understand correctly, you're talking about getting into a sort of functional or adaptive action step. And it's the action step that these days we tend to overlook because most of our mindset is in things that are truly... In, outside of the, our immediate reality. Do I have that correct? Yeah, that was beautifully said. And I would just add to that, I see a lot of young people who, for example, spend most of their waking hours playing video games. And they come to me and they say, I'm anxious and depressed. I'm majoring in computer science. I hate it. I thought I would like it. You know, if I could only find that thing that I was really meant to do, my life would be better. And my first intervention for the many, many people like that that I see in clinical care is you have it backwards. I don't say it quite like that. Mm -hmm. You are waiting for that thing to pull you out of the video game world and you're never going to find it as long as you're playing video games because video games are so powerfully dopaminergic that you have this distorted sense of really pleasure and pain. And you you will not be able to find that thing that you enjoy. And so, of course, the intervention is abstain from video games, reset your reward pathways, start with a level balance. And what invariably happens, and I've just seen it over 20 years so many times, I've become really a, a believer in this. Um, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow, my computer science class is interesting this quarter. It's like, okay. You know, you, you have a receptivity then to experiencing pleasure and reward in a way you just don't have when you're bombarding your reward pathways with these high dopamine drugs. Very interesting. Um, and just to underscore this notion that tending to the immediate things can lead to super performance. Um, uh, I may have mentioned it earlier this episode, um, but if I didn't, I'll mention it now, which is I have the the great privilege of having some close friends that were in the SEAL teams and doing some work with those communities. And it's a remarkable community for reasons that I think most people don't understand. People think they see the images carrying logs down the beach and all the blowing stuff on all the, all the stuff that's, that's fun for guys like that. But uh, all of the guys I know who are in the SEAL teams have this sense of duty about immediate things mm. um and not just holding the door and doing the helping with the dishes and moving mm. things around they are constantly scanning their environment for what can be done ah. they essentially yeah. conquer every environment mm -hmm. they're in they are also some of them the most competitive human beings but they do it <laughs> in the world and they do it unless they're they're in the act of war fighting which is their their real job uh they do it in every environment in mm. a very benevolent mm -hmm. way and it's a remarkable thing because it i think it's what 
is part of what they're selected for. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, there, there's a range there, but I think when we hear about tending to the immediate things right. uh, or this phrase, uh, you know, how you do one thing is how you do anything. Mm -hmm. That's a tr tricky one for me because there's certain things I just don't do well. Um, <laughs> but, but should we always be trying? I, I think that the tending to setting the horizon in closely, um, and tending to things in one's immediate environment, I think it is very powerful and translates. Because yes. again, I think the nervous system, it performs algorithms, it has action yeah. steps. The brain doesn't evolve to do one right. thing, it evolves to be able to use the same approach right. to doing lots of different things. Yes. Um, I, I just wanna yeah. add, so even beyond that, because that, that totally resonates for me and is very consistent with people in recovery from addiction who learn to take it one day at a time, mm -hmm. which is one of the you know standard lingo from Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step groups. But but I think also, as you say, you know, our brain is really wired for the 24-hour period. We're not very good at sort of the, you know, 10 year, 20. I mean, we're, we have these huge frontal lobes and yes, we're great planners and we can, but if we live too much in that space, we can really get very anxious and depressed and lost and either catastrophize or get grandiose. But if you can chunk it down to a day, what, what people in recovery talk about is how if I can just do today right, then I will get a chain of days that seem insignificant in their individual units, but after six months or a year or two years of those good days, I've got two very good years, right? And I look back and it's like, oh, wow, well, I, I guess I, I did all that. But I think that's really, you know, one of the keys is, is really taking it one day at a time, which, which you're sealed. And also this connecting with the environment, right? So being awake and alert to your environment and connecting with your environment, not trying to escape it. And of course, escapism is what we all want and desire, that experience of non-being. And we get it from the internet or from drugs or whatever it is, but it is, it's the booby prize we, because ultimately it takes you further and further away from your immediate environment, which is where we really have to connect to get that sense of groundedness and authenticity and like of being in our own lives. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the unit of the day is something that comes up again and again of in my discussions with colleagues who are extremely uh, successful and who also have balanced lives. Right. Uh, this actually came up in the discussion with Carl Dyseroth, uh -huh. who is also it's a successful scientist and clinician and and you know manages a family, et cetera. So the unit of the day I think is fundamental and those stack up as you mentioned. So Along those lines, I've heard you say that in order to reset the dopamine system, essentially in order to break an addictive pattern, to become unaddicted, 30 days of zero interaction with that substance, that person, et cetera. Right. Is that correct? Yeah. And and 30 days is in my clinical experience, the average amount of time it takes for the brain to reset reward pathways for dopamine transmission to regenerate itself. There's also a little bit of science that suggests that that's true. Some imaging studies showing that um, our brains are still in a dopamine deficit state two weeks um, after we've been using our drug. And then a, a study by Shuckett and Brown, which took a group of um, depressed men who also were addicted to alcohol, put them in a hospital where the, they had received no treatment for depression, but they had no, no access to alcohol in that time. And after four weeks, 80% of them no longer met criteria for major depression. So again, this idea that by depriving ourselves of this high dopamine, high reward 
substance or behavior, we allow our brains to regenerate its own dopamine to, for the balance to really equilibrate. And then we're in a, a place where we can sort of enjoy other things. So that progressive narrowing of what right. brings one pleasure eventually yeah. expands. So I'd like to um, dissect out that 30 days a little more mm -hmm. finely. Um, and I also want to address how does one stop doing something for 30 days if the thing is a thought? So mm. we'll kind of I'll put that on the shelf for yeah. the moment. So days one through 10, I would imagine will be very uncomfortable. Yes. They're going to suck, right. basically, <laughs> to be quite honest. Because what if the way you describe this pleasure-pain balance, yeah. to my mind, says that if you remove what little pleasure one is getting or a lot of pleasure from engaging in some behavior, that's gone. The pain system is really ramped up and nothing is making me feel good. I'll just use myself as an example. I'm not in recovery, but you know, that 10 days is going to be miserable. Right. Anxiety, mm -hmm. trouble sleeping, yep. um, physical agitation yes. to the point where, mm -hmm. you know, um, maybe impulsive, angry. Should, yes. should one expect all of that? Should the family members of people expect all of that? Yeah. So what I say to patients, and it's a really important piece of this intervention, is that you will feel worse before you feel better. Um, For how long? Yeah. This is probably so, the first question right, they yes. ask, right? And, and I say, usually in my clinical experience, you'll feel worse for two weeks. But if you can make it through those first two weeks, the sun will start to come out in week three. And by week four, most people are feeling a whole lot better than they were before they stopped using their substance. So um, yeah, you have to, it's, it's a hard thing. Like you have to sign up for it. And I will say, obviously there are people with addictions that are so severe that as long as they have access to their drug or behavior, they're not able to stop themselves. And that's why we have, you know, higher levels of care sure. or residential treatment. So this is not going to be for everybody, this intervention, but it's amazing how many people with really severe addictions to things like heroin, cocaine, you know, very severe pornography addictions, I posit this, and I do it as an experiment. I said, you know what, let's try this experiment. I'm always amazed, number one, how many of them are willing, and number two, how many of them are actually able to do it. They are able to do it. And, and so that little nudge is sort of just what they need. And the carrot is, you know, there's a better life out there for you. And you'll be able to taste it in a month. You really will be able to begin to see that you can feel better and that there's another way. So the way you describe it um, seems like it's hard, mm -hmm. but it's doable for yes. most people, not yeah. everybody. Right. And we'll return to the that category of people who can't do that on their own. Um, well, then days 21 through 30, uh, people are feeling better. The sun is starting to come out, as you mentioned, They, it, which translates in the narrative we've created here and supported by biology that dopamine is starting to be released in response to the taste of a really good cup of coffee. For yes, instance. exactly. That, whereas before it was only to insert, you know, addictive behavior. Right. That's right. <laughs> what, whichever. Of course, coffee can be addictive too, but, but we'll leave sure. that aside. <laughs> yeah. I feel like coffee has a kind of um, consumption limiting mechanism built in where at some point you just can't ingest anymore. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's wrong. Sorry to give lift to the <laughs> caffeine addicts out there <laughs> as I, cl as I clutch my, my, my mug. Um, so days 21 through 30. Um, 
I've seen a lot of people go through addiction and addiction treatment. I've spent a lot of time in those places, actually um, looking at it, researching. I've got friends in that community. I, I'm close with that community. One thing I've seen over and over again, sadly, often in the same individuals, is they get sober from whatever. They're doing great. These are people with families. These are people that you discard your normal image of an addict and insert the most normal, typical, whatever, healthy person you can imagine because a lot of these people you wouldn't know were addicts. And then all of a sudden you get this call. So-and-so's back in jail. So-and-so's wife is going to leave him because he drank two bottles of, of wine and took a Xanax at 7 a.m., crashed his truck into a pole. It's got two beautiful kids. Like, how did this happen again? To the point where by the fourth and fifth time, people are just done. I mean, maybe people, you might be able to detect the frustration in my voice. I'm dealing with this with somebody that's like, I, I don't even know that I want to help this time. It's been so many times to the point where I'm starting to wonder, is this person just an addict? This is just kind of what they do and who they are. And I and you never want to give up on people, but um, and I'm hanging in there for them. But I will say that um, many people have given up on them. And so what I'd like to talk about in this context is what sorts of things help other people that we know that are addicted? What really helps? Right. Not uh, not what could help, but what really helps. And are there certain people for whom it's hopeless? I mean, I don't like to hold the conversation that way, but I wouldn't be close to the real life data if if I didn't ask. Is it is it hopeless? Are there people who just will not be able to quit their substance use or their addictive behavior, despite I have to assume really wanting to? Yeah. Yeah, so there there are people who will die of their disease of addiction, you know, and I think conceptualizing it as a disease is a helpful frame. There are other frames that we could use, but I do think given the brain physiologic changes that occur with sustained heavy drug use and what we know happens to the brain, it it is really reasonable to think of it as a brain disease. And and for me, the real window of, let's say, being able to access my compassion around people who are repeat relapsers, even when their life is so much better, when they're in oh, recovery, yeah. yeah, it's like yeah. it's like a no-brainer, right? Um, is is to conceptualize this balance and the dopamine deficit state and a balance tilt, tilted to the side of pain, and to imagine that for some people, after a month or six months or maybe even six years their balance is still tipped to the side of pain, that on some level, that balance has lost its resilience and its ability to restore homeostasis. It's almost like the hinge on that balance yes, is messed up. exactly. And so, I mean, for, for someone who's never experienced addiction like yourself, maybe one one way to conceptualize it is- Well, I didn't say that. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, 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 I was not, <laughs> I, to be clear, I, w- I was not referring to myself, but I, I, I in this example I was given, I, if I were, I, I would I would um, come clean. I, I would reveal that. Um, but I, I think that, especially after hearing some of your lectures and descriptions of the range of things that are addic- addictive, yeah. I think- um, I've been fortunate. I don't have a propensity for drugs or alcohol. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm lucky in that right, way right. that 
I, frankly, if they remove all the alcohol from the planet, I'll just be relieved because no one will offer it to me anymore. Right, right. So don't send me any alcohol. <laughs> uh, it won't go to me. Right. Um, but, uh, but I don't have that. Um, I like to think I have the compassion, um, but I don't have that uh, empathy for, you know, taking a really good situation and what from the outside looks right. to be throwing it in right. the trash. Yeah. So, okay. You know? So, so that let, let me, and this is really, I think important because I, I also had to come to an understanding of this. And I feel that I have in my 20 years of seeing these patients. And of course, addiction is a spectrum disease, sure. right? And so you've got the severe end of things. Um, Imagine that you had an itch somewhere on your body, okay? And it was, in, I mean, we've all had that, like, you know, whatever the source. It was super, super itchy. You can go for, uh, you know, if you really focus, you could go for a pretty good amount of time not scratching it. But the moment you stopped focusing on not scratching it, you would scratch it. And maybe you do it while you were asleep, right? That, so, and that is what happens to people with severe addiction. That balance is essentially broken. Homeostasis does not get restored despite sustained abstinence. They're living with that constant specter of that pull. It never goes away. So let me say there are lots of people with addiction for whom that does go away. And it goes away at four weeks for many of them. But in severe cases, that's always there and it's lingering. And it's the moment when they're not focusing on not using, it's like a reflex, they fall back into it. It's not purposeful, it's not because they wanna get high, it's not because they value using drugs more than they do their family, none of that. It's that really they, they, they cannot not do it when given the opportunity and that moment when they're not thinking about it. Does that make sense? That's a great description. And actually in that description, I can feel a bit of empathy because the way you describe scratching an itch in your sleep. Yeah. You know, I've I've done that with mosquito bites in right. summer. You're scratching, you're like, oh, you right. wake up scratching that, right. that, that mosquito bite. And I also have to admit that I've experienced not feeling like I want to pick up my phone because it's so rewarding, but just finding myself doing it. Yes, of course. Like I'm not yes. going to use this thing. I'm not going to use this thing. Right. And, then, and then just finding myself. Yes. Doing it. Like, what am I right. doing here? Right. Sort of the, how did I get back yes. here again? Right. And I, I know enough about brain function to understand that we have circuits that generate deliberate behavior and we have circuits that generate reflexive behavior. And one of the goals of the nervous system is to make the deliberate stuff reflexive so you don't have to make the decision because decision-making is a very costly thing to do. Exactly. Decision-making of any kind. Right, right. So that does really help. Um, the uh, I, I wanna just try and weave together this um, this dopamine puzzle, however, because if by week, so first phase of this uh, 30 or 40 day um, detox, it's like a dopamine fast, right? right? Okay. First 10 days are miserable. Middle 10 days, the clouds are out. There may be some shards of sunlight coming through. And then all of a sudden, sun starts to come out. It gets brighter and brighter. Why is it then that people will relapse, not just after getting fired from a job or their spouse leaving them, but when things are going really well? Yes. Is it this unconscious mechanism? Because I've seen this before. Is uh, They have a great win. I have a friend who's a really impressive creative um, I don't want to reveal any more than that, but uh, and relapsed 
upon getting another really terrific opportunity to create for the entire world. And I was like, how can that happen? Mm. But now I'm beginning to wonder, was it the dopamine associated with that win mm. that mm-hmm. opened the spigot mm-hmm. on this dopamine system? Mm-hmm. Because yep. um, it happened in a phase of, of a really great stretch of life. Yeah, right. Yeah, so you, you raise that great point about triggers, right? And triggers are things that make us want to go back to using our drug. And the key thing about triggers, whatever they are, is they also release a little bit of dopamine, right? So just thinking about um, whatever the trigger is that we associate with drug use or just thinking about drug use can already release this anticipatory dopamine, this little mini spike. But here's the part that I think is really fascinating. That mini spike is followed by a mini deficit state. So it goes up and then it doesn't go back down to baseline. It goes below baseline tonic levels and that's craving right? So that anticipation is immediately followed by wanting the drug. And it's that dopamine deficit state that drives the motivation to go and get the drug. So many people talk about dopamine is not really about pleasure, but about wanting and about motivation. And so it is that deficit state that then drives the locomotion to get it. And earlier, your description of dopamine being involved in the desire for more giving the sense of reward, but also movement. Right. I have to assume that those things are braided together in our nervous system for the specific intention of when you feel something good, then you feel the pain. Yeah. Maybe you don't notice it. And then the next thing you know, you're pursuing more of the thing. And I love the way you use the word braided together. That's beautiful. And let me also just say uh, something that I find also fascinating in my work with patients. And I see this all the time. There are people for whom bad life experiences, loss, you know, in any form, stress in many different forms, that's a trigger. But there are absolutely people for whom the trigger is things going well. And the things going well can be like the reward of the things going well, but very often what it is, is the removal of the hypervigilant state that's required to keep their use in check. So it's this sense of I want to celebrate, you know, or I want to, this reward happened. I want to put more reward on there. And it's really, really fascinating because when people come to that realization about themselves, that they're most vulnerable when things are going well, um, that's really a valuable insight because then they can put some, you know, things in place or barriers in place or go to more meetings or whatever it is that they do, you know, to protect themselves. Along those lines, I have a friend, uh, 40 years sober, was a severe drug and alcohol addict from a very young age, really impressive person, does a lot of important work in the um, kind of at-risk youth community out in Hawaii. And he said something to me. He said, uh, as former addicts often do, they got these great sayings, Um, but I think it fits very well with what you're describing. He said, you know, no matter how far you drive, you're always the same distance from the ditch. And I, and, and I said, well, that's kind of depressing. And he said, no, that's actually what gives me peace. Yeah. Because what would happen is for so many years of relapsing and relapsing, getting recovering and relapsing, he felt like it was hopeless. And then somehow conceptualizing that the vigilance can never go away mm-hmm, mm-hmm. instead of making him feel burdened. Yeah. It made him feel relieved. So I often think about that, uh, that statement, you know, no matter how far you drive, you're always the same distance from the ditch. Because in my mind, I conceptualize that as, gosh, that's a, that's a tough way to drive down the road. But actually, on a road where you know where the ditch is and where you know where the lane lines are, it's actually a pretty nice drive. 
It's when you don't know where the shoulder is that you constantly have to be looking around. So there's this, we're, we're speaking now in, in analogies and, and imagery uh, and science, but I, one of the things I find so incredible about this community of 12 step and there are a variety of them are the, um, the communities that they create for themselves. Um, and some of these sayings, which I do believe link back to really core biological mechanisms. Yes. Yes. I do want to ask about those communities. Uh, I have a question which might be a little bit, um, controversial, uh, great, (laughs) which is, is it possible that people who were addicted to drugs or alcohol or some gambling or some other behavior get addicted to the addiction community? Because one thing that I think I observe over and over is that there's some circuit in the brain of human beings that has to tell you about the dream they had the night before for whatever reason. (laughs) Um, There's another circuit that leads people to uh, wake you up if they themselves can't sleep. I don't know what circuit (laughs) is. I'm being facetious here. But there does seem to also be a circuit in the brain of addicts to discuss and want to kind of talk about their recovery a lot. And I mention this not to poke at them, but rather the opposite, because I think that one thing that is challenging at least for me and having friends that that have a propensity for drug or alcohol addiction, not all of them, but certainly some of them, is when they're talking about the recovery, I feel like it's all they talk about. This meeting, that meeting, that way. Um, how are we, so what I'm really asking here is, um, is that some, can we become addicted to sobriety? Right. So this is a great question and it links into some of the other things we've been talking about having to do with where do we settle settle out? You know, what is the way to live between pleasure and pain? And I implied earlier that ultimately we want a resilient balance that's sensitive to pleasure and pain, but that can easily restore homeostasis after we indulge, even when we indulge greatly. Um, but the truth of the matter is that people with severe addiction, I believe temperamentally want those extremes and they're wired for that kind of intensity that is more than just these slight adjustments around the fulcrum, right? It's like they want the big highs and the big lows. They'll say great meeting. Yeah, They're right. They're like, that was such right. an amazing meeting. Or they find a right. group. Yeah. They find a group in a location. Yeah. Like we see, I, this is almost an inside joke in those communities. Again, I'm not reporting, I'm not talking about a friend in quotes. This isn't me reporting. Well, they'll, um, They'll talk about how attractive people are at a given meeting or how how bonded they feel right, to people at a given meeting. Right. That the meetings themselves right. become their own form of dopamine. Yes. Hit. Yes. Yes. And and again, I'm not being disparaging. Yeah. I just I I want to understand this. Right. So yes. Yeah, so uh, so a lot of times patients will say to me, Oh, you know, I don't want to go to AA. It's a cult. And my response to that is because it's a cult is exactly why it works, okay? Because yes, it is much better for you to be addicted to AA and to recovery than almost any other addiction I could think of. And we know from Rob Malenka's work, who's here at Stanford, that oxytocin um, you know, is the hormone that's involved in human pair bonding and relationships and love. And it directly links to dopamine neurons and causes the release of dopamine. So yes, when we connect with other humans, especially in a kind of transcendent spiritual way, that's a huge dopamine hit. And it does replace the dopamine that people get from drugs. And for people who have this 
uh, addiction temperament, they need it on a more intense level. They're not going to be generally satisfied with kind of, you know, and a sort of acquaintanceship, right? They 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 want that intensity of the intimacy that you get with people when you're cathartically exposing, you know, warts and all. So, yes, people can get addicted to recovery and good for them. Go for it, you know. And of course, this can be disruptive for friendships and and relationships where the one person is not in recovery. Like you're going to so many meetings, you're always talking about recovery, but you know what? Much better than them being intoxicated, right? I mean, so although you may tire of your friends talking about their, their, you know, meetings all the time, I'm sure you would rather have them do that than, than, you know, be in their addiction. So absolutely. And um, this is now the second time you've done this during this discussion, (laughs) but now I have empathy because the way you describe their enthusiasm about meetings is probably the way that people feel about meetings. Me and yes, your work, right? And my in neuroscience. I mean, yes. I've been getting up in front of the class since I was eight years old and talking yeah. about things I read yeah. over the weekend. Now yeah. I just happen to have this thing called a podcast, right? I've been, I've been doing it since I was little, and it right. annoys a lot of people, right? Mm. I've learned to suppress it a little right. bit. Some people like it, but I I'm poking fun at myself just to say that I now can uh, understand that the way I feel about their reports yes. about yet another amazing meeting or right. And or for there's a different form of this, but there's some people for which they just love intense experiences. Yes. They're always like trying to pull me off to Bali because they're talking right. about how sensual it is all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Bali's wonderful. But there's this kind of ratcheting up. It's yes. like seeking Burning Man all right. year long. I've never been yeah. to Burning Man. No desire to go to Burning right. Man. Um <laughs> <laughs> um, but inside of academia, I mean, if I were to just turn the mirror at myself yeah. inside of academia or here in Silicon Valley work and the pursuit right. of more success, even if money is kind of divorced from that, sometimes it is, sometimes it yeah. isn't academic work is, you know, for sake of pursuit of knowledge. It sounds to me yeah. like the same mechanism. Yeah. In fact, it feels to me very much like the 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 same mechanism. So Andrew, here's what I love about you. First of all, you're willing to bring your own flaws and foibles to this conversation. Well, they're everywhere. <laughs> well, you know what? It's wonderful. And then you're really open and curious and wanting to understand because I can't tell you how many people I have met who really see addiction as some kind of otherness. But the truth is we're all wired for addiction. And if you're not addicted yet, it's it's just, it's right around the corner. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Especially with the incredible panoply of new drugs and behaviors that are out there. So I love that you're willing to take a moment and really try to understand this because it is, it is we can all relate. And you're relating it to your, essentially your work addiction is right and, and apt. You just happen to be addicted to something that is really socially rewarded. You know, you figured that out at an early age. Oh, when I do X, Y, and Z, all these people go, look at that smart kid or whatever it is, you know. Well, you- for me, it made me feel safe. Okay. I felt like, um, yeah, I just felt like this. And I pause there because it's like, it's like peace. I'm like, oh, I can relax for a moment when you're talking about neuroscience no or just when i'm when i've when i feel like i'm on the right path yeah and i'm on to something or if i see something that i'm excited about right i'm like i feel um filled with it must be dopamine i feel flooded Mm -hmm. with pleasure literally from head to toe yeah and then my next thought is more 
<laughs> so true. <laughs> you know? You're you're, you're yeah. really you're a true yeah. addict. Okay. You, you are. Thank you. You are. Okay. But you just got really. I think thank you. You really got lucky with uh-huh. the fact that yep. that what you know what you're drawn to is is adaptive essentially. You know, um, and and then your challenge is going to be that your life doesn't get too out of balance in the sense that you're twenty four seven work and you don't stop and do some other things sure. or think of other things. In my life, in my life admittedly is somewhat asymmetric. I mean, it has right. other components of physical right. health, et cetera, but it is uh, right. um, somewhat asymmetric, um, which is why I got a dog. Although I talk about him an awful lot. So, um, But the dog is good because that draws you out of yourself and a little bit away from the work. But again, you know, I think the key here is for people who feel like they don't, they've never experienced addiction or they don't know anybody with addiction or if they do, they don't get it. Just think of that one thing that is the most important thing in your life that you do that gives you pleasure and meaning and purpose. And then imagine if you couldn't do it. Oh yeah, let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, I appreciate the, the feedback and uh, you can send me a bill at the, at the, at the end. Um, what is the most ridiculous sounding addiction that you've ever witnessed that was actually a, a real addiction along these lines? Um, because I, I think we all know the standard heroin pill. You've been very, I should mention, um, because it's important, your previous book, um, and we will provide a link to that as well, focused on the opioid crisis and um, what we thought was medication and turned out to be just as bad, if not worse, than a lot of so-called street drugs. Uh, so we understand those, those you know, gambling, sex addiction, porn addiction, now video games. We'll talk about social media a little bit more in depth, but what's the most like, wow, I didn't realize people could get addicted to that. Water. Really? Really. So I had a very lovely patient who was uh, had a severe alcohol addiction, and she got into recovery from her alcohol addiction um, for many years, but she kind of had a sort of a polydipsia or an urge to be drinking something a lot. And so she drank a lot of water and slowly over time, she realized that if she drank enough water, she could become hyponatremic and delirious and be out of herself. You can which die is, from it, right? Right, which is what she just wanted to be out of her own head. And so she would periodically intentionally overdose on water in order, you know, to, mm. to, I know it was so yeah. sad, so sad. W- what happened to her? She eventually t- took her own life. Wow. Yeah, it was really. That's rough. She was a lovely woman. Mm. She was so bright. She had so many interests and passions. And, and of course it was very sad when, mm-hmm. you know, when she mm-hmm. died. But, but I, I, that was a wow to me. It was like, wow, if you have this disease of addiction, you can even get addicted to water. Wow. And I think it just underscores the the generalizability of these circuits. Right. There, there isn't a brain circuit for addiction to water that she happened to have. There's a brain circuit for pleasure and pain and right. addiction and water plugged into that right. circuit. Right. Wow. That's that's intense. Um, in your book, uh, Dopamine Nation, you also describe some amazing paths to recovery. People that, um, you know, from reading it i would i won't say which ones and who because there's some great surprises in the book too both um tragic and 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 triumphant as they say um you've often described your patients as your heroes yeah yeah tell us a little bit more about that you know when you think about 
how hard it is to give up a drug or a behavior that you're addicted to, how much courage that takes and fortitude and discipline and stick-to-itiveness. These people are really amazing people. I mean, that's, I, I don't know that I could do it, what they, what they do, you know, it's, and like, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, just the constant ever-present urge to use, even after sustained periods of abstinence for some people. That's really, really hard. And of course, then you double down on the shame that that they feel because of that urge, even when their lives are so much better. I mean, these people are really, really remarkable. And you take their remar- remarkable accomplishment and then you imagine the world that we live in now, where we are constantly invited and tempted and really bombarded with opportunities to become addicted at it's every like turn. It's like feeling a niche everywhere. Oh yeah, I mean, you yeah. can't escape it. You know, you cannot escape it, that you'll get an email in your inbox inviting you to do X, Y, or Z. And if you're addicted to that thing, you know, you tried to like delete all your apps and not go here, all of a sudden your work inbox, you're, you know, you're getting those images, let's say, really, really, really hard. And yet these people find a way to do it. I think it's absolutely amazing. And they're really wise people. They have so much wisdom to offer. They've taught me a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, as I talk about in my book, mm-hmm. I have my own addictions and I really just like took a page right out of their book. I was like, okay, what do I do now? All right, what did this patient do? What did that, okay, I'm going to try that. <laughs> it is It is an amazing community of, yeah. of, of the people that yeah. they are very sage. I wanted to um, just touch on something that you mentioned which is uh, the shame yeah uh you know you can't go to a meeting uh or talk to addicts without um detecting or or hearing about like lies shame etc i heard you say um in an interview with somebody else recently that truth telling and secrets are sort of at the core of recovery and um yeah tell us more about that Yeah. So one of the things that I found really fascinating about working with people in recovery was how telling the truth, even about the merest detail of their lives was central to their recovery. And I became really curious about that. Like, why would truth telling be so important? And of course, there is the obvious thing that when people are in their addiction, they're lying about using, you know, so part of getting into recovery is to stop lying to the people they care about about their use. But it's really more than that because what what people in recovery have taught me is that it's not it's not even just not lying about using drugs. I, I have to not lie about anything. I can't lie about why I was late to work this morning, which we all do. Oh, I hit traffic. No, I didn't hit traffic. I wanted to spend two more minutes reading the paper and drinking my coffee, right? Um, or just lying about, you know, I don't know where I had dinner. Like, so people with addiction will get into, you know, the lying habit where they're lying about random stuff because they're sort of in the habit of lying. And how recovery is really about telling the truth, you know, in in all ways. And so one of the things that I, what I had a lot of fun with in writing the book is sort of exploring the neuroscience around why truth telling is important to leading a balanced life. And we know like every religion since the beginning of time is all about telling the truth. Well, why? Right. And there's really interesting neuroscience behind it that suggests that when we tell the truth, 
we actually potentially strengthen our prefrontal cortical circuits and their connections to our limbic brain and our reward brain. And of course, these are the circuits that get disconnected when we're in our addiction, right? Our balance in our reward pathway or limbic brain, our emotion brain is doing one thing. And our cortical circuits are completely disengaged from that, ignoring what's happening, which is easy to do because it's reflexive. We don't need to think about that balance for the balance to be happening. But we have to re-engage those circuits, anticipate future consequences, think through the drink, you know, not just how am I going to feel now if I use, but how am I going to feel tomorrow or six months from now? And that telling the truth is in fact a way to do that, to make these connections stronger. And there, I talk about some studies in my book that, that kind of indirectly show that. So I find that really fascinating. Plus, just that like being open and honest with people really does create very intimate connections. And those intimate connections create dopamine. So we were talking a little bit about how you, you know, know a bunch of people who need like intensity in their lives. For me, I need a lot of intensity in my human connections. Like I'm really not interested in and bored by and made anxious by um, casual um, interactions. But, you know, like having this kind of discussion with you, that's very intense and also intimate and self-disclosing is very rewarding for me. So that's a, an important source of dopamine. Thank God I became a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? absolutely. Right? Like I can't disclose yeah. all my stuff, but I am quite transparent with my patients, which is a slightly unorthodox. Um, but you know, when I think it's right, I'm also transparent with them. So that, that's, you know, that's a source of dopamine too, when we're honest and we disclose and that you think people are going to run away from you if you tell them about all like your weird neuroses, but really they don't. What they're like is, oh, thank God I'm, I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, what I love about, I love many things about your book. I, I read it in one suite oh, thank and, you. and I was like, wow, is, um, I, I was a surprise pleasantly surprised but i was like wow she's really opening up in this book from the very beginning um and i don't want to give uh it away but it's yeah you're you're very open uh where it's appropriate and um and also i think that this question about truth telling i i i always think about like tell the truth be you know a hundred percent about the truth but there's also this element about do you report previous lies mm. right like mm-hmm. what about prior behavior mm. and and mm-hmm. i'm i'm fascinated by this because to me telling the truth is has many facets but the the three sides of this thing uh, in my mind are one is reporting everything accurately the other is what do you withhold what do you not withhold right because some people say um tell the truth or at least don't lie mm-hmm. that's sort of a mm-hmm. lies, a, of, gr- lies of omission that's right? a lies of omission <laughs> uh lies of omission and then there there's the what I have to assume for most people is a small to enormous batch of things that they lied about in the past that still thread into the future. Right. So how important is it for the the addict or the every person really right. to because um, it sounds like cultivating the circuitry between prefrontal cortex and the dopamine system would be great for anybody um, since we're all addicts. Right, everyone should do it. But in in all seriousness, it sounds like a good thing for everybody to do. How um, how much work needs to be done on all the priors, all the stuff we've hidden, mm, and mm-hmm. um, I mean, not me, but all the all the stuff that everybody else has hidden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the you know 
the steps of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, a good number of those steps are about that very thing, the past, the ways that we've harmed people in the past. And one of the fourth step is <clears throat> about making amends, um, you know, by admitting the ways in which that we've contributed um, to harming others. Um, and it is a really big piece of recovery. So, you know, how important, so, so for people with addiction, it's really, really important to go back and make amends. And, you know, you, the, 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 the key idea there is you just go back and you apologize, you know, and you don't, you don't have to get any particular kind of response or you don't need to be forgiven. It's the act itself of apologizing about, the ways in which we've harmed or lied to people uh, in the past that is cathartic and renewing and allows us to kind of shed this skin and be be new in our lives and begin again, sort of absolved, um, you know, of past sins, so to speak. Um, so, so it is really important. Um, you know, are there situations when it's maybe not a good idea because of the, that person or the nature? Sure. You know, there are always going to be, it doesn't have to be like, it's not, we're talking about not like, not like Kant's idea about like never lie, but you know, robbers in your house and you, you know, you're stowaway. You can't lie even about that. It's like, no, there are probably situations where, Absolutely. you know, um, for but, sake of other people's safety, right, children's I mean, safety. Right, right, sure. right. I mean, there are, there, you can think of a million scenarios, but, um, but, but in general, you know, when we're taking stock, because I don't know about you, but I have a lot of regrets and guilt about a lot of things in my life. And, and, um, and they kind of haunt me, mm -hmm. you know, it's sometimes I'll have nightmares. Right. Um, and I think that's true for most people. I mean, I like, occasionally will meet somebody who's like, oh, I don't have any regrets in my life. I'm like, wow. Like I, I cannot relate to that at, at all. Um, so, you know, this idea of like catharsis and well, I mean, in the 12 steps, it's telling, telling God or your higher power, telling another human being the ways in which you've wronged others, considering your own character defects and how those have contributed to me. That's a really important piece and something that we don't do enough in our current culture, especially in psychiatry, frankly, where there's a, like a lot of eternally em empathizing with patients, but not a whole lot of like going, well, you know, actually you kind of messed that up or like that was really bad on you, you know? And, and in my work, I don't necessarily use that language, but, you know, um, patients may say, like, I, I really feel badly about, you know, this thing. And I'll be like, yeah, I get it. Mm -hmm. I, I understand that you feel. Well, guilt is a, is a, right. there's a circuit for that too. Right. And it's, know. it's important. Yeah. Right. And it's also important to um, recovery and to not becoming addicted to, you know, experiencing a certain amount of appropriate shame for things that we have done and, you know, feeling the pain that comes with shame, which is an incredibly painful emotion, right? I mean, I think that may be the one that we all try to avoid more than any other is like that shame um, of not being liked or not being accepted or not being or that celebrated. Or the thing that we did is is really despicable. Right. It's know? really, yeah, like, you oh know? my God, I yeah. did that horrible thing. Right, right. And then, so, I mean, I've done horrible things that um, I haven't gone back and said I did this horrible thing, but I'm maybe I've tried to pay it forward. Like I've told my kids, you know, when I was younger, I did this horrible thing and it still haunts me. So if you're ever tempted to do something like what I did, you might think about my situation. So, you know, some mm -hmm. kind of way, yeah. but I think wrestling with that is is important. No, I, I think it's a really important element to all this. And there's not, um, I love that there's neuroscience 
being done on truth telling yeah. and the value of truth telling. Yeah. I, th- I think uh, it, if I were to predict a, a new and truly exciting area that people are going to be really curious about and um, in this huge sphere we call neuroscience, I, I hope they'll continue to do more work. Yeah. Also speaks. I'm so glad to hear that's happening here at Stanford. Um, uh, no, that's that, that the, well, the, the, the literature that I look at isn't Stanford work, but, um, but there's work. There might be, it might be people. Stanford. Regardless of where it's <laughs> yeah, happening. Yeah. Um, more of that and all the rest, yeah. please. Um, I want to ask you about using drugs to treat drug addiction. Mm. Um, these days there's a growing interest or at least discussion about Ibogaine mm-hmm. people going down, going out of country because I think it's still illegal here, um, or is illegal here going out of country to, I don't know, either, um, inject it or smoke it or whatever it is, or people going and doing ayahuasca journeys or, um, MDMA, which is still an illegal drug in this country, but there are clinical trials. There are people on this campus doing experimental studies. I don't know of clinical trials, but at Johns Hopkins, there are clinical trials, et cetera. So this um, this is a vast area, right? Different chemistries for different drugs and different purposes. But the, the rationale, as I understand it, is take people who are in a pattern of addiction, launch them into a experience that's also chemical and extreme, often of the extreme serotonin, and or extreme dopamine type. So MDMA, ecstasy, for instance, Mm -hmm. tons of serotonin dumped, Mm -hmm. tons of dopamine dumped. How neurotoxic, if neurotoxic, debatable, et cetera, et cetera. Not a topic for now, but a lot. And then somehow that extreme experience wrapped inside of a, uh, a supported network in there, whether or not there's just someone there or whether or not they're actively working through something with the patient, is supposed to eject the person into a life where drug use isn't uh, as much of interest. This violates at at a at a rash purely rational level. This violates everything that we've talked about in terms of dopamine biology. Yeah. It would, if this arrangement is the way I described it, cause more addiction. It is anything but a dopamine fast. It's a dopamine feast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we hear about successful transitions through this, at least anecdotally and may, um, maybe mm-hmm. some clinical say, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's good that you're skeptical. Um, I think we all should be skeptical. Having said that, um, there are clinical studies showing, um, you know, and these are small studies and they're short duration, small number of subjects, but, you know, taking people, for example, who are addicted to alcohol and then having them have this, let's say, psychedelic experience in a very controlled setting. So either typically it's a high dose psilocybin or, or three dose, as I saw it for the MAP study of, of MDMA, of right. ecstasy. Those are sort of the, seem yes, to be the kind, the, of, the typical, the kind right. of bread and butter of this right. kind of work. Right. Yeah. But the thing to really keep in mind is that this is completely interwoven with regular psychotherapy and that these are highly selected individuals right. and right? clinical trials right right, right. and these are clinical, legal clinical right, trials right right and 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 so you know it, it, i want i think the metaphor that i that, that helps me think about this is there are many ways to the top of the mountain and these are sort of like taking the gondola instead of walking up it's sort of instead of doing like a year of psychoanalysis where you're sitting on the couch every week reflecting on your life, it's a condensed version 
of psychoanalysis or psychotherapy plus, you know, MDMA, which gets you there faster. Creates the intimacy, presumably, right. because of this. Well, I think the main thing that happens when it's beneficial is it just allows the person to get outside of their own head and look at their lives on a much broader sweep and to consider themselves not mired in the, you know, quotidian sort of details of their life, but rather as a human on a on the large planet earth in the vast universe. So I think it takes it, it's like when it works it's a transformational experience because it gives the person another lens through which to view their life their lives which which I think for some people is positive and powerful because they can come back from that and be like oh my gosh I care about my family and I don't, I want X, Y, or Z for them. And I realize that my continuing to drink is not going to, you know, achieve that. So it's, it's almost like a spiritual or values based. So I think it can be very powerful, but, but having said that, I truly am quite skeptical because, you know, addiction is a chronic relapsing and remitting problem. It's hard for me to imagine that there's something that works very quickly, short term, that's going to work for a disease that's really long lasting. Yeah, the two addicts I know that that did MDMA, MDMA assisted psychotherapy as far as part of this um, thing both got worse. Yeah, um, but the people I know who had severe trauma, uh -huh. who did this, who took this approach, seemed to be doing better. Okay, interesting. And so I, um, I think that uh, the discussion as we hear it now is just sort of psychedelics which is a huge category of, right. that includes many different drugs and compounds with different effects. And we hear about trauma and addiction lumped together. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, I'm a splitter, not a lumper, mm -hmm. as we say in science. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think it's going to be important for people to know that this is definitely not a one size fits all kind of thing, but it sounds like it may have some utility under certain conditions. Yeah, I think so. I think we, I'm, I'm trying to be very open-minded about its potential utility for certain individuals, but I can tell you in my clinical work, what is a very concerning um, unintended consequence of this narrative is I have a lot of people who are looking for some kind of spiritual awakening who on their own, not in the context of any kind of therapeutic psychological work, you know, microdose or want to try, you know, psilocybin or MDMA with a friend or wherever so they can have this, you know, spiritual experience that they can figure out their lives. That, that's a disaster and, and almost never works out well. And I've then had people who literally, supposedly you can't get addicted to psychedelics because, you know, something with the biochemistry, which I don't fully understand because it doesn't make any sense to me. But I have patients clinically who definitely are addicted to, you know, MDMA, to microdosing. So that's very concerning for, to me because like, you know, Pollen's How to Change Your Mind, that, that you know, I, I respect that work. But on the other hand, it's penetrated the culture. Michael Pollan's book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and 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 I'll, I don't know him, and so um, I don't have a problem taking a taking a stance. Um, uh, so I'll just say my stance on that is the narrative of popular authors can expand and wick out so fast. Yes, that pretty soon people are essentially taking their mental health into their own hands. Right. And I I actually have I have great optimism for this uh, business of of clinical use of um, 
psychedelics, including MDMA. Matthew Johnson at Johns Hopkins is doing fabulous work on this. Um, and, and there are others too, of course, but those are controlled settings. Right. And the pharmacology is being tuned up. And one thing that I think is coming, uh, there are several papers published recently in great journals like Nature and Science, et cetera, where there are scientists who are removing the hallucinogenic components of these drugs and finding that they still have the antidepressant effects. And so the experience of a psychedelic and the long-term effects of the psychedelic might actually be dissociable. Mm -hmm. And so I, again, I, um, and I'm always careful to say I'm, I'm neither for something or against it. I, I just think that um, treading carefully is what's important. I, I I agree with you, and I can just tell you that the the downstream effect for the average person, um, I, for many of whom present in our clinic, is that they've misconstrued the data on the use of psychedelics for mental health conditions um, to this idea that they're safe or that anybody can take them in any circumstance and have this kind of awakening and. and it, that that's not what the data show, right? The data are these highly controlled settings, um, you know, se carefully selected patients. So th that's my worry, mm -hmm. you know. Sure. And uh, um, I'm going to be sitting down with Matthew Johnson and at some point, and we'll discuss this. And I think that uh, that care and that um, that cocoon of cl of real clinical care does seem to be an important yes. component. Uh, well, I'm glad we could touch on it and. Um, it, you know, I'm sure I'll get a bunch of comments telling me that, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, but, but I, but I think it is important to explore things from all sides and yeah. that's, that's what we, we do as yes. scientists. And if Michael Pollan wants to chat, we can do that too. Um, <laughs> that's fine. I, re I very much enjoyed the book yes. actually. Yes. Um, but I think that, uh, people run with ideas. That's right. They don't mm -hmm. walk with them. That's they sprint. Right. right. Um, yeah. there are a couple other things I just want to touch on, um, but they all relate to social media. Okay. You were featured in The Social Dilemma. Uh, it was a powerful movie. I think many people have avoided seeing that movie because it it reflects back on us just how addicted we all are yeah. and how manipulated we all are. Yes. But it doesn't seem to have changed behavior mm. much. Mm -hmm. I, I have to say that the, the movie changed my understanding and my perception, mm -hmm. but not my behavior mm -hmm. too much. Mm -hmm. If we look at addiction as a maladaptive thing, something that's making our lives worse or our, our us less functional at work and in relationships, I could imagine a version of social media where it's making me more connected. I mean, this is a podcast after yes. all. I post yes. videos, this will show up on mm -hmm. YouTube and, mm -hmm. um, and elements of it on Instagram as well. So much like uh, sugar or um, other things, I have to imagine that we need to regulate, not necessarily eliminate this behavior. So I want to talk about what that looks like. And I want to talk about what you've referred to as this narcissistic preoccupation that social media is creating, that we are all far more keenly aware of how we look and how we sound and how we are being perceived than right. we were 10 years ago. Right. So first of all, social media, um, how addicting is it really? And what is healthy social media behavior? So the first message I would want to get across about social media is that it really is a drug and it's engineered to be a drug. 
Um, and it's based on, you know, potency, quantity, variety, um, the bottomless bowls, the likes, the way that it's enumerated, all of that, which doesn't mean that we can't use it, um, but we need to be very thoughtful about the way you, we, we use it, just like we need to be thoughtful about the way we use any drug. Um, and so that means with intention and in advance, planning our use, right? And trying to use it in, as, a, as, a, as a really awesome tool to potentially connect with other people and not to be used by it um, or get lost in it. And of course, you know, people are going to come with different propensities for addiction to any drug. And that's true for social media too. Some people will have no problem using it in moderation or using it in a way that's adaptive. And other, other people will immediately get, get sucked in. And the key thing about getting addicted is when it's happening, we, we, nobody who's getting addicted thinks they're getting addicted, right? Let's face it. It's only after the fact that we go, whoops, you know, what was that about? Well, remember texting and driving. There were all these books about texting and driving, how terrible it was. Yeah. Even the governments have largely given up. You see these these yeah. billboards Terrifying. like "Don't text and drive" yeah. or "Any text can yeah. wait" or "Not worth dying for." Right, but everybody's right. texting and driving. Right, and if you look at young people today, teenagers, I mean, they're basically cybernetically enhanced. That the phone is there. You know, it's like they're talking to you and texting twelve friends at the same time, and. There's no stopping it. I mean, the genie is out of the bottle yeah. where, you know, it's not, we're right. not going back, right. you know? So we, we do need to figure out, you know, how to make this, this tool something that's, you know, going to be good for us and, and not ultimately harmful. And I, I don't have all the answers at, by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think, you know, some of the wisdom that we have learned from using other drugs also applies to social media, which is to say that we have to, again, put barriers in place that allow us to remain in control of our use, which means not not too much, you know, not too often, not too potent. Um, Do you think in going back to this idea of the, the unit of the day being a good, a tractable unit, a manageable unit of time for most people? Um, so you're saying in advance, so allocating two hours in which you're going to allow yourself to have free reign use of the phone and all its apps and all its things, or um, even more restricted than that, meaning, okay, I'm, I'm only going to allow myself 30 minutes a day to post and comment. And then that's a close out completely. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it depends on the person and sort of a combination. We talked earlier about, you know, having an itch and scratching yourself at night. We've gotten to a point with smartphones, people are pulling them out and they are utterly unconscious of doing so. Pulling them out, you know, a couple texts, a couple sweat. They I, don't know I they're doing it. I have a friend <laughs> who, who works in, uh, does, delivers babies. Yeah. And um, many pregnant mothers won't actually deliver without their phone in hand. And this used to be the hand that was right. connected to their spouse. Yeah. This may be a comment on, on, yeah. on spouses yeah. uh, more than on phones, but... Um, <laughs> But uh, it sounds like there's it's a kind of a security blanket, right? Of like sorts. a transitional object. Yeah, yeah. actually, yeah. that reminds me. You've referred to um, the phone. I think it's the phone, but maybe it's our online persona or ourselves as we've become sort of infantile mm -hmm. in our need for it. it's like a baby in a bottle, right, right? And so I do wonder if if we have regressed, and I do think we've regressed a bit mm -hmm. um, in terms of our online behavior our inability to con 
act like yeah, I always saw an adult with somebody that can control their behavior. Yeah. That's the difference between a baby and an adult. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be a developmental mm-hmm. neurobiologist for very right. long to understand that a young organism can't control its behavior mm-hmm. and an older one can. Mm-hmm. So to me, a, a mature organism, mature in years organism that can't control its behavior is a baby. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's an immature version <laughs> of itself. And there's, neural, there's neuroscience to support that statement. Yeah. Um, I look at my own behavior with the phone sometimes and I think I'm a grown Man, like, <laughs> what is the problem here, right? Um, you know, I don't eat baby food, but I'm acting like a baby with yeah, the phone, right. all right? Um, in the sense that I'm reflexively picking it up. Mm-hmm. I'm um, not being intentioned and deliberate with right. it. Mm-hmm. Um, do I need a full 30 days, Anna? So, so yeah. So, so <laughs> 30 days yeah, away yeah, from yeah, my as phone. As you know, that's my recommendation, mm-hmm. the full 30 days to reset. I think, you know, if you're if you're severely addicted, that, that I, I recommend the 30 days. But if you're just a little bit addicted, like most of us, you probably don't need 30 days. In fact, a single day not only would be challenging, but, um, but probably maybe sufficient. Mm-hmm. My phone is off for substantial segments of the day. Okay, that's great. And it drives other people crazy. Mm-hmm. People expect me to respond, uh, but I don't care. I yeah, really don't. Right. And I right. actually take a little bit of pleasure yeah. <laughs> in the fact that, well, because I think the point I'm trying to make is the right one, which is that it's not just right for me, but like why, right. there, I don't see a clause on text messages or emails that say, must be responded to within right. X amount of time or else. Right. Um, or else. Yeah. So I take the liberty of de- replying when I, when I'm able to. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Or want to. Yeah, we, yeah. right. Yeah. But which touches on one of the big challenges about social media is that as more and more of us are spending more and more time on social media, we're divesting our libidinous energies, etc., from real life interactions. So that means even when we want to choose to not be online connecting. We go outside and there's there's no there there, right? There's nobody else there. So I think our collective challenge, and it should be our mission, is to make sure that we are preserving and maintaining offline ways to connect with each other. Because if, if we don't do that, then we'll be very lonely, right, if we were not online. But if you have a tribe of folks that you can be with, none of whom are on their phones, while you're together for that discrete amount of time, then it's wonderful and liberating and nobody's distracted. And I think that's really the key. And I think young people are figuring that out. You know, They're trying to create these spaces or try to, let's say, instead of doing a dopamine fast by yourself, do it with your friends, right? Then there's the FOMO is less, the fear of missing out because Oh, you're all doing the dopamine fast together. So these are some of the tricks that you know we mm. can come up with. But I like that. Yeah. Okay. I like good. That. I don't allow. I have a home gym, and I I love working out. I I just enjoy it, and I always have. And I I don't allow my phone yeah. in my gym anymore. Right. And I live in an area where I don't get any reception, like two meters outside my right. door. So all my dog walks now are just right. with the dog, and they were boring as hell. Yes. I also have a bulldog. He doesn't like to walk. It's really slow. <laughs> Uh, and it was so boring for a while. Yes. Because I was so used to taking calls while right. I walk and it's super efficient. Yeah. Why wouldn't I do that? Yeah. The walks now are some of my favorite part of the yeah, day. Yeah, right. Because, and if the phone were, if I were to get a call on one of those and yeah. they brought reception of the area, disrupt- I would be very yeah. dismayed. Right. So I can attest to this. And um, I, I don't think I'm a phone addict, um, but 
I do put work into regulating my f- Yes, so this is the key. You have to, with intention, prior to being in that situation, think of literal physical and metacognitive barriers that you can put between yourself and your phone or whatever your, your drug is to create these intentional spaces where you're not constantly interrupting yourself essentially and distracting yourself because I really do think, you know, I think we talked just, just before we, we started with the interview, you know, we're, we're losing the ability to have a sustained thought, right? I mean, we, we get so far and then, then you get to that point in the thought where it's a little bit hard to know what's coming next. And it's very easy to check your phone or check your email or look something up on, you know, the internet. And then you never get that opportunity to finish that thought, which is really the source of creative energy and an original thought, right? You're not just reacting to right what's and something that at could you. contribute to the world. That's I'm, right. I'm a big I'm I'm a big believer that you're either consuming or you are creating. Right. Uh, and there there is I should mention uh, it's important. I do believe in neutral time. I think sleep is great. I'm a big proponent of sleep, <laughs> and I've talked a lot about yeah. it on the podcast. I care a lot about sleep. Uh, and not just for sake of performance. I actually just really like sleep. Um, I think that c- being a constant consumer of visual information and information of all kinds can can be a problem. But but there's some really great sources of information on the internet. Yes. And um, uh, and I I certainly benefit from from the fact that that those channels exist. Um, narcissistic preoccupation. Am I a narcissist? <laughs> you know, I th- first of all, there, there's there's healthy. Or is the fact that I asked does that take me out of? Would a narcissist never ask that question? Oh yes, a, a highly sophisticated narcissist oh, would know to well, do I'm that. Well, not very sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> so there's healthy narcissism, which means that we all invest our personal energies into things that we care about, and if our competence in that arena is threatened, we we would all experience a narcissistic injury, and that's normal and healthy. Um, but but but. We are living in a narcissistic culture. I mean, that's not news, this preoccupation with individual achievement and individual self-worth and individual self-confidence. And I think all of that is just fueled by social media, where we're not just seeing ourselves, but we're seeing people's reactions to ourselves and every single, you know, thing we say or do, you know, we get likes and this and that. It's really insidious and it contributes, I think, ultimately to a lot of personal shame because we're not really meant to be individuals bouncing around in the universe. We're social animals and we're we're probably generally happiest even for natural contrarians among us when we're part of a tribe, right? And if we do too much to kind of separate ourselves from, from that tribe, I think that the brain's natural and instinctive corrective mechanism against that is self-loathing and shame. So, you know, it's so ironic because the the culture tells us if we just achieve more, we'll like ourselves more. But the truth is actually the opposite, that, that I think when people get these pinnacles of personal achievement, you know, you have things like the imposter syndrome or wh- whatever, you know. Or you just, you know, we're at Stanford after a lot of high achievers here, right? right? Um, some phenomenal amazing people like yourself and other colleagues of mine that just i'm always in awe like it's just amazing like the mean it is shifted so high and also people who have amazing stoke paths to yeah. get here mm-hmm. uh coming from very little accomplishing so much but it's also the pressure yeah right um you know the way that 
this career was described to me the day I got my job was one colleague of mine, the late Ben Barris said, welcome to schizophrenia because you're never <laughs> going to be able to complete anything for it without getting interrupted. Uh -huh. That was partially true, although I've created buffers. And the other one, um, very uh, successful scientist, a member of the National Academy, et cetera, said to me, you know, I just remember it's pinball. You never win. Mm. The best you can do is just keep mm -hmm. playing. Yes. And I thought, right. wow, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then mm -hmm. you just go. Right. But I think that as we achieve more, not just academics, of course, but as anyone achieves more, there's the relishing and the accomplishment. There's often the desire for more, but there's also the pressure of, well, now I have to do this for the next 30 years, mm -hmm. even though I love it. It's the pressure of, right. well, if the mountain is this high, then how do I get here and here and right. here? And then you start right. shoveling more dirt on so you can keep right. climbing. And it's a lot of work. Yes. And I think that the... Um, the perception of success is that there's a roar of the crowd and you cruise. Right. You don't cruise. Mm -hmm. that they just give you more to do. Right. Or you give yourself more to do. Well, what I think is, at least in my my life experience, and I've heard this from other people as well, you know, it, it's that prize that we're going for that if we get it is so unsatisfying. And it's the prize that we never imagined that we kind of go, well, how did that happen? But gee, you know, that feels good. And so I'm very, you know, it's curious. What's the It's like a mirage in the yeah, one case. And yeah. it's like a, um, like a, it, yeah, it's on the one, it's almost like dopamine can create these mirages. Yes. That there's some place. That's there. right. And if I just, it's that pot of gold, right? right? It, if, I, if I just. Constant dopamine. Right, right. That's constant right. That's dopamine. right. Yeah, and and I think this you know this really I think is related to our our talk, our discussion earlier about this taking it one day at a time or paying attention to that you know twenty four hour period in your environment. I am absolutely fascinated by the ways in which we accumulate success when we do that, totally independent of the desire for success. It's really process oriented. It's like. Where am I today? How can I make today a good and meaningful day a little bit better or as good as some other days I've had? Constantly tweaking and experimenting with this experiment that we call, you know, our human existence. And when we do that in a way that's authentic and paying attention and value-driven, whatever our, you know, values are informed by, it is very, very interesting how those days, again, accumulate and you find, well, I guess I contributed something of value there, but I wasn't trying to do that. You know, I think that's really, I mean, what, what I'm so amazed by is like, you know, 20 years ago when I went to Stanford Medical School, 25 years ago, um, you know, I just, I was happy to just be a good doctor. I was like, I, I guess I'm just going to try to figure out how to be a good doctor. And I'm here to learn that. And now I see these medical students and they're wonderful. They're brilliant and they're well, they they're well intentioned, all that. But they're like, um, how can I, you know, write the great American novel, do my startup, go to Africa, apply for that grant? You know, it's like, really? I was just trying to learn how to be a doctor. And it's, as you say, it's a lot of pressure on mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And it's also, kind of a weird leapfrogging of the real way to accomplish something. Right. By which isn't about like, oh, how can I accomplish something? It's like, what can I do today that would be of service? Right. And then finding that of trying to be of service 
you know, and, and not really going for recognition can sometimes lead to what people call success, although that wasn't what you were aiming for. And it's all the more beautiful when it's not what you're aiming oh, for. Oh, so much better. So much better. Yeah, I'm a big believer that when one can um, align their compulsion with some greater good. Yes. A service to humanity right. or the planet or animals, whatever it is, that um, that's the that's where the the really good stuff emerges because it, there's a lot of reciprocity there. The world starts to, you're supporting the world and then it starts to support right. you in a way that feels very fluid. And that comes back. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that speaks to like your generosity to me vis-a-vis -vis my book. And I have to say- Well, I, I love the book. I know. It's, 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 there's it's, like, we're, yeah. we're not in a business deal, folks. It's just purely that I heard Anna lecture in my course. I wanted to learn more about dopamine. She taught me. I asked her if she would come on the podcast. Turned out she wrote this amazing book. She sent me a advanced copy of the book. I read it in one sweep. It's incredible. And I love it. So just like the eight-year-old version of me, uh, now the 45 version uh, of myself, I can't stop blabbing about the things I love. Well, yeah. it's, it's awesome, but I have to say I have been surprised by your generosity. Mm. It's not something I've encountered frequently oh. at Stanford, mm. um, which is a wonderful place. Sure. But it, it, there, there, there is a general sense that if I give away to somebody else, I've lost, I've lost something, mm. um, which is not the right way to think about it. Not how you are. And also not how the world works, because when we give away to other people, we we get back so much more, but it, it takes a long time and it might not come through that path. I never think about the about reciprocity. Yeah. But I was um weaned by good advisors. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. yeah. I think I just sort of got drilled into me that the more the more you give, the better your immediate life is. Yes. Yeah. That's but I also don't have a long term vision, you know. I, I just I'm I'm just excited about the book. I'm excited that people are are learning about the brain and dopamine. I have to admit, having grown up in neuroscience, essentially, I did not understand that pleasure and pain were orchestrated the way that they are. I'm very mindful of it now. Oh, good. Um, and it's changed a number of my behaviors. I know a number of people are going to have questions and want to get in contact with you. You are not on social media. That's correct. Yes. You are true to yes. your you are true to your ideology. Yeah. That is yeah. that's great. And and the reason for that is just I, I wouldn't be able to control myself. I mean, that really would be my drug. People are my drug, intimacy is my drug, and, and I wouldn't be able to manage it. And so just it was just easier for me to not do it at all rather than try to moderate it. Mm -hmm. Well, the book, as you um mentioned before, and as I can attest to, is it has a certain intimacy. People get to know yeah. you through the book. So definitely check out the book. Um, if you have questions about the book, et cetera, you're welcome to send them my way. I'll, I will buffer you from all those questions. <laughs> I'll filter them. Um, Anna, Dr. Lemke, I, I should be a formal, forgive me, I've been referring to you no, as Anna no, the whole way fine. through because we're colleagues. But thank you so much for sharing this information. And um, I know I learned a ton and I know everyone else is going to learn a lot more about addiction and the good side of dopamine. That's right. Thank you for having me. It's been really, really great to talk with you. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for my discussion with Dr. Anna Lemke. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please be sure to check out her new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. You can pre-order it on Amazon or any places where books are sold. It's an absolutely fascinating and engaging read all about addiction and dopamine. 
If you're learning from and or enjoying this podcast, please follow us on YouTube by subscribing to the Huberman Lab channel. In addition, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Spotify. And on Apple, you have the opportunity to leave us up to a five-star review. If you have comments or suggestions for topics for future podcasts, please put those in the comment section below this episode on YouTube. And as mentioned at the beginning of today's episode, we are now partnered with Momentous Supplements because they make single ingredient formulations that are of the absolute highest quality and they ship international. If you go to livemomentous.com slash Huberman, you will find many of the supplements that have been discussed on various episodes of the Huberman Lab podcast, and you will find various protocols related to those supplements. Please also check out our sponsors that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. That's a terrific way to support our podcast and our ability to continue to bring you zero cost to consumer information about science and science-related tools. And last but not least, thank you for your interest in science.